welcome back to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. I'm Mika. And this is a music history podcast where I try to teach music history to my wife. Who knows nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Or very little might be a nicer way to put it. I'm really excited about this one though actually because I knew that we were starting with minstrelsy but I don't know at all what comes after that. Okay. So I, I, I have no clue what's happening from here on out. Nice. Well, I mean, I'm sure you'll know a little bit about some of the genres as we get into them. Maybe. Like, we'll start talking about, like, rock and pop, and you'll be like, oh, I know those people. I do You won't know, know anything people. about this. I'm <laughs> pretty confident. Let's that. learn together. Yeah. First, before we do that, couple, I mean, not housekeeping things, I guess. Follow us on social media. I said that last time, but it got cut out, so <laughs> I had to re-say it. I followed us on social media this week. It's about time. I'm sorry. <laughs> so our Facebook is just facebook.com slash soundofhistory, all one word. Our Twitter is just twitter.com slash soundofhistory with an underscore under it. So give us a follow on there. and uh, After it, underscore after yes, it. Yes, soundofhistory underscore. underscore. I tried to do like sound underscore of underscore history, but a Twitter username can only be 15 characters and sound of history is 14. So I can only add one character to it. <laughs> So I had to do an underscore afterwards, but whatever. So follow us on social media. That way you can stay up to date with everything going on. And you can also see what Nick is doing on there and the things that he thinks is cool. Some other podcasts. Yeah, it'll be great. And leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever you listen to this on. Only if it's nice. (laughs) Helpful criticism only. Yeah. Don't not don't just like compliment us. Let us know things that you want. <laughs> they can compliment yeah, me. Yeah, you can compliment <laughs> us if you want to. But like, let us know things that you hear, and you're like, oh, I wish they would do this instead, or I wish they'd do this differently. Let us know that because I want to know so we can change and be better. Mm-hmm. Starting a podcast is hard. It is. There's a lot to think about and a lot to do. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to have friends to help you. Be our friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with all that out of the way, now we're gonna get into the music history. Whoa. I feel like I need like a jingle. Music <laughs> history is a music history podcast. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Today, we're talking about vaudeville. Just, I liked doing this with minstrelsy. So mm-hmm. just knowing only that name and nothing else, what do you think vaudeville is? I'm picturing like a 70s van. I don't know why. Like, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Okay, I'm just like picturing, a hair like, metal band. Like, what are you? No, like like a yacht like rock a band, mystery machine. Oh, okay, touring around <laughs> playing music. That's the. I don't know. Okay, that is not at all what I expected you to say. I'm sorry. I really don't know. I don't know why that is what came to mind, but it is. All right. Well, I mean, you got one part right. They did tour around and play music. Yeah. They weren't 70s bands. Oh. We're not to the 70s yet then. (laughs) No, we're not. We have a lot more to go. We're still pre-1900. Oh, goodness. We'll be there for a little bit. Okay. Today, we're going to talk about vaudeville. It gets a little murky because there was other stuff happening around this same time, so it's hard to know what to talk about next, but it's very easy to draw the link from minstrelsy to vaudeville, so that's where we're going next. They're pretty similar in style and makeup, mm-hmm. just not... Makeup. Yeah, like we, we what still... made them up. Oh, <laughs> I thought not, we were no, talking not about something <laughs> I was interested in, which is also not blackface, <laughs> but like actual makeup. No, I mean, they probably wore makeup. I don't know. All right. 
Vaudeville originated in France in the late 1700s, but the vaudeville of America was far different than what it was in France. French vaudeville was light comedy interspersed with poems and music. I like it. It was all connected and weaved a much larger story. To be honest, I didn't really look much into French vaudeville because it's American Music History Podcast, so I didn't want to like waste time researching wouldn't a be a waste of time. It sounds interesting. I guess, but that's for a different time. All right. Maybe World season two can be music. French vaudeville history. Okay. We'll have like three episodes and then be done. All right. American vaudeville, which from here on out, I'm just going to call vaudeville, had a sort of inauspicious start. The first performance we know of happened in 1860 during the height of minstrelsy. It was a very gentle and subtle kind of performance. This particular form became known as polite vaudeville through its peak in the <laughs> 1870s through the 80s. That's adorable. <laughs> as we saw with minstrelsy, the common form of entertainment was traveling variety shows. Minstrelsy was, of course, the most popular, but so were traveling circuses and burlesque performances. Tony Pastor, who was an impresario. I, yeah, you want to explain that? <laughs> yeah, he's a cool. person who finances shows and plays. Impresario? So, yeah. An impresario, I think is how you say Just it. Just picturing like an empress. I picture... Empress Mario. I picture like the Monopoly man with bags of money and like a long white mustache. But with a crown. Sure. I, I mean, they're not royalty. I don't know. <laughs> it's literally got empress in the word. Whatever. This dude it's was... It's spelled differently. It's spelled I-M-P-R. Oh, so he's impressing people with yes, all of his money. Exactly. And his taste in music. What's he do again? I forgot the definition. <laughs> Tony Pastor, who was an impresario, who's a person who finances shows and plays, okay, and he was also a ballad and minstrel singer, wanted to capitalize on the middle class. A lot of the traveling shows of the time were body, risque, and catered to the blue-collar class. So he wanted to create a show that was polite and tame, something that parents could bring their kids to. Okay. Yeah. October 24th, 1881 is commonly referred to as the date that Vaudeville was born. In New York City, at the 14th Street Theater, Pastor staged the first clean vaudeville show. He barred the sale of liquor and removed any crude material from his shows. That's just no fun. <laughs> you want to get drunk and cuss at people? That's your idea of fun shows? I want to get drunk and have people cuss at me. Yes. <laughs> That's 100% okay. what I'm looking for we'll in entertainment. just take you to dive bards in downtown Nashville and let that happen. Heck yeah. Coming for you, Broadway. Here's my favorite part. He even offered his guests coal and ham as gifts. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know how those two are connected. And I don't know you what You cook the ham with the coal? I guess. I don't know what kind of ham he's offering them. I'm picturing like large blocks of ham. <laughs> it's just Does not seem very cost effective. Nope. He was hoping to attract the more refined uptown audiences. Yeah, with, they're going to go eat their ham and watch <laughs> their boring performance with no alcohol. It worked, and others started to follow his example. All right. In 1890. You gotta follow that ham. <laughs> follow the ham. That's the new logo or the new tagline Hashtag of this follow podcast. The ham. <laughs> in 1894, B.F. Keith and his partner E.F. Albie, apparently no one liked their first names in this time period. We What's got BF and name? EF. Like Franco. Yeah, it probably is Frank. I was going to come up with something crazier like Francois, but <laughs> this isn't French vaudeville. So. No, this is American vaudeville. Frankfurter. It's French can stay in season two. In 1894, BF Keith and his partner EF Albee took over vaudeville. The two met when they were touring with P.T. Barnum Circus. 
They started in Boston and opened a chain of theaters that all worked together. Albie, in particular, was obsessed with the idea of polite entertainment. He had strict rules that his acts were to follow. Any that went against these rules would essentially be blacklisted and not able to play in any of Keith and Albie's theaters. All right. Sticklers. A lot of the acts ignored the censorship, and audiences seemed to love it when That's they went against the rules. That's my people! <laughs> this led to Albie creating rules for audience members oh my that God. were enforced by ushers. <laughs> it's like the Ryman. Yeah, imagine having that job. Like, oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't enjoy yourself here. Shut up and eat your ham. <laughs> Keith would post signs backstage to warn the performers against being too rowdy on stage. One of the signs read... Don't say slob or son of a gun or holy gee or holy gee on stage unless you want to be canceled preemptorily. If you are if you are old if you are guilty of uttering oh, anything sacrilegious. Gee. Yeah. You did not holy say gee. that right. <laughs> I did the second time. I messed it up the first did time. Did you really? Yeah, I corrected myself. I just was so like I mean holy gee is funny. Holy gee. <laughs> holy gee. Oh if you are guilty of uttering anything sacrilegious or even suggestive, you will be immediately closed and will never be allowed in a theater where Mr. Keith is an authority. Whoopah. This guy just sounds like a barrel of laughs. He's exactly who I want over my entertainment. Yeah, really. By the late 1890s, following Keith and Albie's lead, vaudeville companies started to have large circuits made up of small to large theaters in a variety of locations, a large talent pool of performers, and standardized booking procedures. The largest and best known of these circuits was the Orpheum circuit, which was out west, and we'll talk about them next episode. I actually feel like I've heard of that. Really? Is I mean, there's like there's an Orpheum theater in Memphis, so you might know that. That must be it. I don't know why you'd know that, but you might. But there's still, I've like, Orpheum theaters around. I'm well-traveled. <laughs> it's true. And Memphis <laughs> is, like, what, four hours away? In its heyday, vaudeville played pretty much everywhere and for everyone. It wasn't just for the middle class and large cities anymore. People started to say that if a show could thrive in Praoria, Illinois, it could make it anywhere. That's fair. This led to a common question, will it play in Praoria, as a rhetorical question to ask if something appeals to the American mainstream. That's hilarious. Was this like the New York City of the time? No, it's the complete opposite. The like, if it could succeed in this middle-of-nowhere town, See, then it could succeed anywhere. See, that doesn't make a ton of sense, because I feel like in the middle of nowhere, you just take whatever entertainment is thrown at you. They also have less time than they're busy with farming and doing important stuff. People in New York don't do anything, so they got all the time in the world. <laughs> Sorry, New York. Yeah, if we have any New York listeners, I just lost them right there. I think that they do a lot. But apparently that question, will it play in Praoria, is like still a popular expression, but I've never I've heard never it used. I've never heard that. I have no clue where... Praoria is... Apparently, will it play in Praoria? Which, I mean, we're probably saying wrong, but... Oh, well. I don't think there's anyone who lives there who listens to us. But yeah, apparently that's a common phrase that neither of us have ever heard. Uh, there were three common tiers of vaudeville. Small time, medium time, and the big time. Wow. Which are all so pretty original. self-explanatory. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was at the... like. It was at the time. Like, no one had used the big time before this. This is the first time oh. the big time became, like, a phrase. That's cool. Yeah. The Palace Theater in New York City was the pinnacle of the big time. It was built by Martin Beck, who was the leader of the Orpheum Circuit, that we'll talk about later. And it was managed by Keith, the guy who didn't want people to say holy gee on stage. It opened in 1913. Can I bring that back? Holy, holy gee. It's not holy. 
It's Hully. H-U-L-L-Y. What? I don't know. That's <laughs> just that's what it is. All right. Holy G. Bringing it back. <laughs> the Palace Theater opened in 1913. Shows here would follow a similar standardized routine. They would start with a sketch comedy, then a single, which is an act by one male or female performer, then an alley-oop, which is an acrobatics show. That's awesome! <laughs> alley-oop? <laughs> acrobatics. Then another single, then another sketch, usually blackface comedy. After and that, we're back. Yep. After that, there would be some variety in the acts, some musicals, some comedy, but an extravaganza, which is one large number with all the performers, would close the show. Actually, sounds like a pretty good time. Yeah, it sounds long. Like that's a lot. It does to happen in one show, but I mean, all I'm saying is, I went to a six-hour concert yesterday, and it was Shit, awesome. So I'm on board. But there's no alcohol. But you do have no. ham. Yeah, so you have ham in your dinner piece of is provided. I, I, Hashtag follow the ham. Only if it's cooked ham. If it's not cooked, then what? Are, you're just sitting there with. And a you have ham. a pet pig. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> the palace boasted a large number of influential entertainers, including Harry Houdini. Oh, we'll I know talk that more one. about the palace when we talk about Martin Beck and the Orpheum Circuit next episode. Cool. By 1925, the Keith Albee Theaters alone employed 20,000 performers across 350 theaters. In 1927, they, more, they merged with the Orpheum Circuit and grew even larger. So are you, like, understanding the idea of, like, circuits and stuff and what's actually happening here? Touring group? Basically. Like, it's basically these companies, Keith Albee in this mm -hmm. case, set up theaters in a whole bunch of different popular cities like they'll have mm -hmm. one in boston philadelphia new york keith and albie were in the east so mm -hmm. they would have it all up and down the east and then they would employ like a group of performers and just send a tour to all their theaters through the so it just kind of like instead of each individual theater in all of these places having to book their own shows you could just book a tour and just go down the door gotcha yeah Vaudeville was able to segment its performances into shows tailored to individual audiences. Certain theaters would cater to African-Americans or Italian-Americans or even Yiddish. Cool. In a way, it's a little bit of a predecessor to the genres we have now. Which, I mean, there are already genres, but like it's just like more tailored to individual targeting groups. Burt Williams was the first African-American celebrity, which I don't know if that's true. I have that in here, mm -hmm. but like... We already talked about Mastajuba yeah, and Minstrelsy. Who was around with the Minstrelsy. Yeah, who was very popular. So I don't know if this is true. I might have to walk that one back a little bit. Fake news. <laughs> he was a vaudeville performer, regardless. Despite being well-educated, Bert wore blackface and spoke in a poor dialect. But Bert didn't poke fun at his own race, like black minstrel performers often would. Instead, he created universally funny experiences that anyone from a somewhat poor background could relate to. Even so, he would take his fair amount of discrimination, but he always would, like, bear that discrimination because he was enjoying the success he had. So he'd just kind of, like, All right. take it on the chin and smile through it, I guess. In 1910, a white producer offered Williams the starring role in one of his most popular shows. Get it, boy. A role he would hold until his death in 1922. Even though people were a little hesitant, hesitant to accept him as the star of a popular show, they said that Williams was too talented to not be given a spot in the big time. Look at him. Yeah. That's actually pretty cool. Here's a song from 1909 by Burt Williams named Nobody. I'm so excited. Nobody. 
recording is available on iTunes if anyone wants to get the full recording. And I am full of nothing and pain. Very interesting. He's wearing an ostrich a costume. That's terrifying. I'm a little worried though, still, but he seems very sad. He's long dead. You don't need to worry about him anymore. In 1918, Noble Sissel and U.B. Blake were among the first African-American entertainers to not use blackface makeup during a stage performance. Good job, guys. Yeah. Because honestly, it's kind of terrifying. Yes, it is. Something interesting to come out of the vaudeville of this era was an interest in, how do we put this delicately, the female form. That's right, boys. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Keith and Abby loved polite entertainment and gave their performers strict rules. When a performer broke these rules, Keith would give them a blue envelope that was basically a black mark on their record. This led to people calling the more raunchy lines and acts blue material. (laughs) Keith might have hated it, but audiences loved the blue material. Other managers started using this material as a marketing tactic to draw on audiences. Because they would be like, Keith and Abby don't offer this, but look at the women we got. Oh, goodness. Of course, this meant that producers and managers started to focus more and more on female acts. And as the sexualization of these acts increased, they started focusing more on hiring attractive performers rather than talented performers. Mm. At the end, audiences Don't were love where that's going. <laughs> at the end, audiences were very surprised when one of the attractive women actually had talent too. Oh no. <laughs> wow, it's like today. <laughs> at the Coster in Biles Beals, I don't know. I'm I'm so bad just, at pronouncing just names. Speak with authority, <laughs> and and you are the expert on this subject I'm in this room right me. now because it's you, me, and two cats. Okay, <laughs> so just say what I you're going to say. I think the cats might have a better go of pronouncing some of these <laughs> names than I do. <laughs> at the Coster and Beals Music Hall in 1896, the first public showing of a movie projected on a screen occurred, and thus cinema was born. Good job, cinema. The birth of lower-cost cinema in the late 1910s and the fact that performers could get paid more with better working conditions to perform in movies led to the sharp decline of vaudeville. Yeah. Most of the top vaudeville talent left to have careers in cinema. By the late 1920s, most vaudeville shows included a lot of cinema showings during the performance. So they would, like, start with their acts and do all that and then have, like, a little movie in the middle and then go back to their acts. Interesting. Yeah, just trying to adapt. On November 16, 1932, the legendary Palace Theater shifted to showing strictly cinema productions, and that is widely considered to be the official death of vaudeville. You want to see like a short example of a vaudeville performance? I definitely do. It's not a great one. I feel like it's, it's kind of hard to do find. an example of something with so many different parts. Exactly. Like they're hours long, but this is just like a little bit. Oh, there's that female form. Yep. She's doing a weird little... Shake what God gave you, girlfriend. Move those hips. All right, let's fast forward a little bit. Oh, oh my God, she picked up a chair and she's just (laughs) twirling. It's in her mouth. What? No, it's not. in her mouth. No way. Oh my God, it is. How light is that chair? I, how strong is her jaw? 
This is uh, very interesting. Oh, it's another lady in a nightgown. Well, here's, a, here's an alley-oop. Wait, I think she was undressing. <laughs> so this probably isn't Keith and Alley. Very blue. Yeah, this right, alley-oop yeah. is no. I want to see the alley-oop. Keep it going. I don't. Okay, this might not be an alley-oop because it's not an acrobatics performance. Oh. She's just sitting on a swing. Yeah, okay, never mind. Oh, she's undressing. Everyone is just undressing. <laughs> yeah, so this was later stage vaudeville. Had to be. But yeah, that's vaudeville. We'll put that link in the show notes so people can go watch the whole thing. I'm going to remember thing. this as early stripping. <laughs> I think burlesque is early stripping. Yeah. Well, still. Well, I mean, that's kind of all I had. It's like a very it. short episode. We're I like don't minutes. love the sexualization of women, but no. you know what? We have the female performers on yeah. stage doing what they're doing. Women employed. I I like women. I don't like objectification. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, I, that's a that's a fun. solid stance. To have. <laughs> <laughs> Pro women, women anti objectification. <laughs> women good. <laughs> objectification bad. Follow the ham. <laughs> Hashtag follow the ham. That's Hashtag what we've gotten out of this episode. Hol- holy oop. Holy. No, a holy G. Holy G. <laughs> holy G. Holy G and alley oop. You combine them. Oh my holy God. oop. <laughs> All right. This well, yeah, just that's vaudeville. Time. I like vaudeville. Vaudeville just, is a little bit lighter. Yeah. It's a little bit hard to kind of talk about because there's just so much happening and with it. I'm very intrigued, They're not honestly. like standard. Like minstrelsy was pretty standardized thanks mm-hmm. to the Christie minstrels they had that format right vaudeville didn't have such a format like it had that thing i said earlier where there were these different parts but like yeah. they're open to interpretation so do you know in your research like like what kind of music is happening though because like it seems like it's a talent show like we're going to do this sketch and then we're going to like fly through the air but like the music itself like it was just kind of the simple songs like minstrelsy yeah it's probably very similar to minstrel songs like we had that that burt williams song i showed you that would be a typical not maybe not typical but that's an example of a vaudeville song yeah i really just wanted to give him a hug that was probably part of an act like he was probably playing a character who was like depressed or something oh that's so hilarious (laughs) depression (laughs) woohoo But yeah, that's that's probably how a lot of it was. I think a lot of it was like acting. So you're not okay. singing. So it's like early music. Yeah, it's not like what we have now. It's like people being a character and singing a song as that character kind of thing. All right. That's I what like I would. It. That's what I assume it is. I like that. Yeah. Fun times. All right, let's vaudeville. Next week we'll talk about the Orpheum Circuit, which was like the biggest. And I like. I think that's a pretty cool story. I yeah. think you'll enjoy the Orpheum Circuit. Wow, I can't wait. All right. Well. This is a very short episode. Yeah. (laughs) But thanks, guys. We're going to learn more on the next one, and it'll be super cool. Yeah. I think I need to, like, implement a segment at the end of these shows called, like, Correction Corner, where I fix mistakes I made (laughs) in previous episodes. That's hilarious. Do you have one that you want to go for I do. It's a minor one. I think it's minor. Other people might not. But I apparently majorly mispronounced the river that Stephen Foster was born near. Oh, no. In Pennsylvania. That's so not okay. One of our listeners is from Pittsburgh, and they corrected me on Twitter. Thank you so much uh, for, like, 
actually helping us yeah. learn and say things better now that's it's so cool that we have someone that's like hey actually this is how you do that that's the awesome guys at the turnstiles podcast who they have a really cool podcast they had an, an episode recently about like concert etiquette that was really funny Ooh. i liked it a lot i am very interested in listening to that yeah, because we sure. were stuck behind some very tall people at the concert <laughs> last night Oh, yeah. man, I'm going to go give that a listen, and you guys should, too. Thanks yeah, for teaching us how to pronounce stuff. Yeah. Thanks I, I still guys. don't know, though. Like, if I tried to say it right now, I would still mispronounce it. So just go bug those guys, and they'll tell you how to pronounce it. <laughs> so there's that. And then also, just a self-correction, I called, in the Stephen Foster episode, I think I called him, like, the first internationally known American musician. But I don't know if that's true or not, so I'm walking that one back a little bit. I think he's definitely the first internationally known American songwriter. But not necessarily yeah. musicians. Because there was like minstrel groups performing and stuff. And like Mastajuba performed in Europe. All so right. like, and he didn't perform. So presumably someone was playing his songs. So whoever played those songs would also be an internationally. I, I don't get know. what you're saying. So I can't, I can't prove that, but I don't think anyone can prove it's not true either. But I'm just going to walk it back a little bit and <laughs> say that Stephen Foster probably wasn't the first internationally known musician. But he was probably the first internationally known songwriter. All right. Those are the only corrections I have for if this episode's correction corner. If anyone has any other interesting tidbits or you want to correct Nick because I can't call him out on his inaccuracies, <laughs> <laughs> let us know. This is cool. All right. Well, that's all we have. Join us next week. See you later. Bye.